All right, well, uh, uh, good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah, hanging in there, chilling, enjoying it, living the dream, I think. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the, the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse uh, Community Church. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. Uh, man, before I, I jump into everything, or actually, as I jump into everything, today we're going to find ourselves uh, in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 11. So if you want to go ahead and open or uh, load your Bible, head there. I'll just keep talking for a little bit. I feel like we got a lengthy introduction in front of us. Um, Man, we'd love to hang out with you. And so on your chairs, there should be these, uh, these connect cards. And uh, fill one out, drop it in the offering basket, and we'd love to connect. We'd love to hang out with you, um, should that be something you desire. Because we do, and we love coffee. So if you love coffee, we'd like to take you out to coffee. Um, I think I've exhausted that word. Uh, so we have, uh, man, like I said, we have a, quite, a be, uh, quite a few things to, to really just uh, walk through and talk about this, this, uh, this morning. Um, this week, is, uh, it's been a pretty busy week. Um, let's see, we've had uh, graduations, right? That's a big one. We've had graduations. It's been, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Teachers Appreciation Week, right? That's a big deal. And uh, today is Mother's Day. Right, so very, very awesome. So I'm gonna—I want to walk through each one very briefly, touching on a few things before we jump into our time. So, man, if you graduated this weekend, if you know someone that graduated this weekend, very cool. Welcome to the workforce, I guess. Awesome that you got your degree. Seriously, that's a big deal. I know you've put in a ton of hours of studying, maybe some all-nighters, maybe on purpose, maybe as a result of procrastination, but hey, you made it. Very awesome. Glad you guys are there. The second one is Teacher Appreciation Week. Like, let's give it a big, big round of applause for our teachers. We have a lot of teachers in our church. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a big deal, and, 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 and I don't say that just because it happens to be Teacher Appreciation Week. Um, so, like my dad, uh, at the end of the month, is retiring after 45 years of being a teacher. So, like, I get it. Man, I, I get him coming home every day. I mean, it was like routine. Maybe that's where I get it. Like, he would come home, set his briefcase. Uh, the thing is, now it's like backpacks. For him, it was briefcase. And so, he, uh, he puts his briefcase in the same corner of the house, sat in the same chair, and then he went to town on grading papers, knocking out tests, uh, just doing a bunch of stuff, and I've seen him do it as a kid through 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 my adult life, where he started off as uh, the way I remember when my dad started is because of the movie Jaws. Jaws came out in 1975. That's when my dad started teaching. He started in kindergarten and made his way through. I, I know he's taught elementary. He's done high school. He's done the university level. He's gone international. The guy's like. His, he's a beast. And, uh, but nevertheless, so I get the schedule. I get the late hours. I get waking up really early. I understand that uh, teachers, you're not, only, uh, you're not only teachers, right? You are counselors. You are like second parents. You might be the only parent. You might be someone that uh, uh, sees these students for who they can be, the potential they may have, uh, some of the things that they share with you, man, because they trust you and they love you because you care for them and ultimately love them. And so if you know a teacher, uh, man, be sure to hug them, say thank you. If you remember any of your teachers, say thank you because they poured in a ton of time and invested in you when uh, you didn't want it. Like I, 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 this week I thought about 
There's one guy, uh, his name is uh, Mr. Trevino. He was my uh, junior English teacher. He's the guy that pretty much inspired me to start writing and, and pursue English. And I was an athlete, and uh, I really fell under that, uh, that category that, oh man, my coaches will come and they'll help me out, you know, if I'm not exactly doing really well. And, uh, and I remember one six weeks, Mr. Trevino helped me out so that I can keep wrestling. And, uh, and then I remember going to class the next day after a weekend tournament or something like that. And Mr. Trevino grabs me by the arm and he pulls me aside. And I had just bombed a quiz. And he says, do you remember, I, 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 uh, I forgot, he, I, let you, I let you wrestle that, that weekend. And I said, yeah. He goes, show me some respect. I'm trying to help you out and you're not putting in the work. And I was like, oh, all right. Yes, sir. And, uh, <laughs> and so that, that moment on, I just remember doing my homework. Um, but he was really, really cool. He was one of those dudes who was like, he saw us for, for who we could be and really poured in. And so teachers are very, very awesome. Uh, the next one is uh, Mother's Day, right? Mother's Day is a big deal here. So happy Mother's Day. Some of you may have already celebrated that early on in the week. Some of you are celebrating it today. And um, one of the things I did want to uh, walk through concerning Mother's Day, and, and here's what I'll do. I'll, I'm going to walk through this, and then I'm just going to jump into our time and, and pray. Um, I feel like, uh, even in my brief experience, particularly in ministry, I feel like when it comes to Mother's Day, it can be a day that isn't the happiest for many uh, women. It could be a day that even might come across as awkward, particularly in a church service. And so I'm not going to ask anyone to stand or do any of that because there's so much that goes into being a mother uh, because it is, it is I mean, it's a full-time gig. And, uh, and so one of the things I did this week was read this article, um, or I, really it was a blog post. I read this article and the author's words to mothers were uh, to mothers were much louder, I think, than what I could, I could conjure up. And so I adapted some of this, but ultimately what I want to do is just share this and then I'll pray and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, go into, we'll go into our time this morning. So here we go. To those who gave birth this year to their first child, we celebrate you. To those who lost a child this year, we mourn with you. To those who are in the trenches with little ones every day and wear the badge of food stains, we appreciate you. To those who experienced loss through miscarriage, failed adoptions, or running away, we mourn with you. To those who walk the hard path of infertility, fraught with pokes, prods, tears, and disappointment, we walk with you. To those who are foster moms, mentor moms, and spiritual moms, we need you. To those who have warm and close relationships with your children, we celebrate you. To those who have disappointment, heartache, and distance with your children, we sit with you. To those who lost their mothers this year, we grieve with you. To those who live through driving tests, medical tests, and the overall testing of motherhood, we are better for having you in our midst. And to those who are pregnant with new life, both expecting and surprising, we anticipate with you. Join me in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, as we walk into this time uh, of worship through your preached word, Lord, my, my, my desire is to set just a short amount of time, man, for, for our college grads who have put in a ton of effort, uh, pray that you would bless them and care for them as they jump into, man, the workforce and look for other opportunities, whether it's furthering their education uh, or the start of their career. Lord, we lift up our teachers who uh, sacrifice uh, so much of their time and pour in so much of themselves into their students. We appreciate them. Pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would continue to be at work in them and that they would draw strength from your grace. And that they would, as they look toward the end of the year, which is only a few weeks away, that they would look toward it and finish the year well. And Lord, for for our moms, Lord, my prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, you would draw them to first and foremost fix their eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith that through your Holy Spirit you would remind them that they are created in your image, saved by your grace, and pursued by your relentless love. And Lord, as we enter into a time of the preached word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of your people so that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus so that we would, and so that you would call us to repentance and an ultimate worship of you and you alone. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going to find ourselves one more time, Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. Now, I want to give you kind of a a brief recap. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to walk through a lot of content today. But uh, I want to spend a brief recap on on last week. Last week we talked about gospel partnership and that that word partnership ultimately uh, was talking about fellowship, Christian community. And uh, a lot of the themes that we walked through last week are going to be present in today's text. One of the bigger themes that I think we're going to see is ultimately our role in terms of activity. Uh, if, if you're new, one of the things that we talk about a lot here at Storehouse is that uh, our identity determines our activity. And last week, we talked a lot about our identity as we did the week before. This week, Paul begins to become a little bit more practical in what it looks like for us as a church to actually uh, be in community with one another, giving a couple of practical steps Or not a couple of practical steps, but some practical encouragement and exhortation. So what I would say concerning this section is that this would be an encouragement to you, the individual, but that this would be an exhortation to the church as a whole. Right? So this is an encouragement to you as the individual, but then an exhortation to the church as a whole. And, uh, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to walk one verse at a time to unpack each one of those verses, and then we'll dive into more of our time. So beginning with uh, verse 7. 
This is, this is what Paul writes. Uh, so he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Here, here's what I want us to focus on concerning verse 7. Okay? I want us to focus on when Paul writes that he holds them dear in his heart and that they are partakers with him of grace. One of the things that we talked about last week was how much the Philippian church is dear to Paul because of the relationship and friendship he has with them. Here, there's nothing necessarily different, but when he writes that he holds them dear in his heart, it's something that te- it's, it tells us something about Paul. It tells us that his heart has been transformed. You see, if you go back several years and go into the book of Acts, Paul, who was once Saul, ultimately was a very well-educated Pharisee. He saw the persecution of many Christians, and even at one point oversaw the stoning or execution of Stephen, right? Paul was there. Paul had many books of the Bible memorized, and again, was well-educated, yet he persecuted Christians. And we'll see him talk more about this previous life later on in this letter. But that's who Paul was. And now as we visit Philippians chapter 1, what we see is that he holds the Philippian church dear to his heart, that he has this relationship and friendship with them. That is a result of a heart that has been transformed. And so as I mentioned earlier that this uh, sermon, this message is an encouragement to you as an individual, but an exhortation to us as the church, what I would submit to you as an individual is that if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, your heart has been transformed. It has been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That should be a wonderful reminder It should be something that leads us to examine ourselves. It should be something that we hold very strong to, fast to, and close to our hearts because the new heart that we have been given has been given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Christians like Paul, what we see is that our life is transformed. What's so beautiful about him saying that he holds them dear is that Who he was isn't who he is anymore. And that would be my encouragement to you, that if you're a Christian and your heart has been transformed, renewed, regenerated, that who you once were isn't who you are now. Additionally, as he goes on, he says, you are all partakers with me of grace. What's so beautiful about that section, about those couple of words, is that Paul is recognizing that the grace that he has received from Jesus isn't just something that he has received to keep from everybody else, but it is something that he shares among the rest of the church. Remember, his relationship with the church in Philippi, we talked about this last week, his relationship is because they are united in Jesus. It is not determined by proximity or even life season. This dude's in a Roman prison right now. He is nowhere near them, and he is in a completely different life season. But their relationship is defined by their unity found in Jesus. 
And so when he says that he holds them dear to his heart, that shows us that his heart has been transformed, or at least reminds us that it is God at work who transforms our heart. And when he goes on to say that we are partakers of grace, he is saying, you and I share this together. We share in this grace together, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In other words, grace, the grace that they share together encompasses their entire life, not just a section of their life. Now, as this is an exhortation to the church, as this is an exhortation to the church, where that places us in is if you are a Christian, if our hearts have been renewed, then we are partakers of this grace in all facets of life. Because our relationship, as we talked about last week, isn't going to be determined by proximity, because that can change, by life season, because that's always changing. But it is determined by our unity in Christ Jesus. So there's the encouragement to the individual and the exhortation to the church. Verse, uh, verse, verse 8, actually verses 8 through 10. This is what Paul writes. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here's one thing I want you to pick up as we walk through this section. He uses the word all a lot. Because he's talking to the whole church in, in Philippi. He's not just talking to an individual. He's talking to everybody there at the church in Philippi. So in uh, verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your, he's talking to the church, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Verse 10, the beginning of verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. Let me read that one last time. And starting in verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. There's a lot being said in those two and a half verses. But one of the things that Paul, or what Paul is getting at, I should begin with, what Paul is getting at is that he desires for the church, you and me, for our love for one another to grow and abound more and more. And I think many times when we hear language like this, or when we talk about the love of God or the love of God in the church, we tend to dismiss a lot of things because we tend to get very emotional about it. And I'm not saying that's bad. Emotions aren't bad. I just don't necessarily think that they are primary. I think they are secondary. What Paul is saying here when he says, I want your love to abound more and more, the only way in which you and I can grow in our love for one another is if our knowledge of Jesus grows. What does that mean? Theology is important. What we believe is important. What we know about God, who God is, and what God is doing is important. In other words, you can have knowledge without love, but you cannot have love without knowledge. Say it one more time, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians. You can have knowledge without love, but you cannot have love without knowledge. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
I am nothing. He goes on later on in this section to say that he is nothing more than a noisy gong. If our love is to increase for one another, this is us as the church. If our love is to grow, then our affection and knowledge of Jesus must also increase. Because here's the truth. As our knowledge and affection for Jesus increases, we are made more aware of our sin. We are made more aware of what we're dropping the ball on. And what that should do is the Holy Spirit should convict us of our sin so that we would repent, worship Jesus, and our love increases. This is very systematic. I think this is why I like it. Right? That's, that's the whole thing. It's an A plus B equals C kind of a thing. If our love for one another is to increase, then our biblical knowledge of who Jesus is and our affection for him must also increase as well. And if it is not, it's because you don't want it to. Right? It's because you know something's going to be exposed that you're going to have to deal with. And you don't want it. Nobody likes that. Right? love then is a result of knowledge and affection for Jesus. And so when we increase in biblical knowledge, we recognize that the love of God is sufficient. Next up, he writes about discernment. Discernment means to test. Say that really clear because I want to spend a little bit of time here. Discernment means to test, to be cautious, to be careful, so that we may see not only what is good, but what is best, right? This is Romans 12 too, right? Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to test what is good and pleasing to God, right? We all got that memorized, right? So it's Romans 12 too. That's what discernment is. As our knowledge for Jesus increases, our affections for him increase, our love for one another abounds, we are now able to exercise discernment where we're able to choose what is best because we've put it to the test. Not just what is good, but again, what is best. Ultimately, what pleases God. And I would, I would hone in on that. Ultimately, what pleases God. See, the reason I want to spend a little bit of time when it comes to discernment is because I feel like, I don't really like saying it this way. One of the things I see is that many times this is where we compromise on the gospel. This is where we compromise on our faith in light of discernment. And because we're talking about relationships, I'll speak relationally. I think this is where we compromise in terms of relationships. Those of you who are single dudes, single ladies, this is where I become concerned, right? That we choose not to exercise discernment because um, he used the hashtag blessed, right? <laughs> like, he, you know what I mean? And we laugh because some of it's kind of true, right? What happens when we don't exercise discernment is that ultimately we compromise on the gospel and instead of exercising discernment, we exercise poor judgment. And we exercise poor judgment and we compromise on the gospel because ultimately what we're saying, if we refer back to our affection for Jesus, we're saying our affection for Jesus applies to all of this area of my life except this, this one piece 
And the reason we compromise, particularly in relationships, or most of the time when we compromise in relationships, is because we feel entitled to that relationship in some way. I've waited long enough. He's a good guy. She has a job, whatever. Like they were raised well. You can apply so many different things right? That ultimately happens when we begin to compromise the gospel and when we compromise discernment. And the truth is, it's a decision that we're making. Many times in the church, we can use words like, man, he, he or she, I'm putting everybody in that category, he or she had really good intentions. But the question is, are you discerning what is good, pleasing to God, good and pleasing to God? But we don't think about that because ultimately we think, man, I've been waiting so long. This sounds right. It feels good. And that's maybe true, but we're not using discernment. Instead, we're compromising and executing poor judgment. And so that would be where I find myself concerned. And I'm not saying I don't, I don't like, I'm the most discerning person. I am, I'm not saying that, right? Like my, wi- my wife has way more discernment than I do. I'm usually the one like, yeah, let's bring them all in the house. She's like, wait, right? So I, I get it. But if we're speaking relationally, that's something that, man, we need to talk about. And if we're not exercising discernment, perhaps it is because we are not increasing in our knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for the reason that we know something's going to get exposed. And we don't want to talk about it because now someone's going to be doing this. And now I have to explain, I have to do all this, whatever. Right? How about we just all put it on the table? That's what we've been talking about. How about we just put it on the table? Let's just confess that sin and repent. And let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's, let's go that route. Right? Because the beginning of verse 10 kind of puts us on the spot again. The beginning of verse 10, uh, when he's talking about knowledge and discernment, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent. There's a result. When we discern, it's so that we would approve what is excellent. And ultimately, what is excellent is what pleases God. It is when we are doing God's will. Right? So that you may approve what is excellent? Not what you want, not what you feel, but what is excellent, right? But what is excellent? Let's go to the, the second half of verse 10. And so he goes on to say, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. We talked about the day of Christ Jesus uh, uh, last week, right? This is the day when Jesus comes and his work of salvation is complete and he calls all believers to himself. That's cool. We won't dive into that right now. If you want to learn more about that, go to last week's sermon. But where he does, what I do want to hone in on is where he writes pure and blameless. So we're going to be talking about purity and uh, and blamelessness. Now, I'll start with blamelessness because I think these two words can... Uh, much like we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about uh, saints and servants, they might have some bad connotations or we might have some misconceptions of both. Same thing here. When we're talking about purity and blameless, we're talking about some specific things. That was, I'm talking really fast. Am I? Okay. <laughs> Let me get something to drink. When we're talking about blameless, 
when we're talking about being blameless in this text, in the context that Paul uses it in, what he is saying, what it means is not causing offense. That doesn't mean that you don't get offended. The gospel in and of itself is offensive, right? What he means is that we do not cause one another to stumble, right? That we do not cause one another to stumble. Now that's exceptionally important. I think that's, that's something big because oftentimes in Christian community, this is something that we don't necessarily think of or we devalue being blameless before one another. Some of the reason is because, man, we feel like that means to be perfect. Sometimes because we kind of don't want to talk about certain things. But again, if this is an exhortation to the church, then one of the things that we need to address is how we not only hold one another accountable, not only how we follow up with one another, but the reason why we do that. It's so that we would not cause one another to stumble because the goal is for us to grow in our love as our love for Jesus. And our knowledge of him increases. This is all going to point back to that section, and it's all going to point back to verse 7 because we share the grace of God that has been given to us as a gift by him. And so we hold one, or we are blameless before one another. This is Romans 14. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment. Excuse me, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Sometimes we get caught up in waving the banner of Christian freedom as opposed to setting aside our preferences and actually serving one another because the goal is to grow in our love for one another as our love for Jesus increases and our knowledge of him increases because we share this grace that we have been given. Additionally, when we talk about purity, right, he's not talking about us being perfect. We're not going to achieve perfection. But what he is talking about is that we are growing in our sanctification. We defined sanctification last week, the doctrine of sanctification. We defined it as becoming more like Jesus, the ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus. And as we grow to be more like Jesus, our, we hate our sin. As we mature, our hate for our sin grows. Right? You don't just mature in Jesus and still love your sin. That's, that's not the way it works. Right? But in addition to the doctrine of sanctification, what it does tell us is that we're going to stumble, we're going to fall on our face daily, continually, and all of the time. Purity then comes as a result of, man, our hearts being matured and molded into the image of Jesus. So it's a part of the process. And what better way for that process to happen than in Christian community, fellowship, at community group the other day, uh, the other night, we were talking about the importance of community, I think. And, uh, and my son says, uh, he says, oh, it's like my dad always says, you can have the great, you can have, uh, what did he say? You can have a really good idea, but once you tell your boys, they're going to tell you that you're an idiot. Right? <laughs> and I was like, yep, I, I said that. <laughs> um, what? What I meant, however, uh, or the context of what it means is, on your own, 
Yeah, you're going to think that idea is the greatest idea in, the, in all, all, like, history, right? But then you surround yourself. Like, for me, I'll surround myself with a couple of the guys and be like, man, this is my idea. And James will tell me that's dumb, right? <laughs> but he tells me that so that I can start thinking about it and start working through some of that stuff. Or some of the guys will start poking holes in it so that they start seeing maybe some inconsistencies or they'll start poking and prodding. And you can apply it not just to an idea, but just to life. That the idea behind Christian community and fellowship is that, man, as we share life together because we're partakers of this grace, you can rest assured that, yeah, we're going to share life together. That means speak into one another. That means also being involved in our successes and in our failures. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. The reason we just don't like it is because we rather be on our own and do our own thing and say, look at what we did. Right? So when we're talking about being blameless and, and, and having purity, it is an increase or it is us growing in our sanctification and at the same time, making sure that we don't cause one another to stumble. And finally, verse 11, Paul, Paul writes in, in verse 11, <clears throat> Uh, so at the end, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, here we go. Fruit of righteousness. We get to be a little bit nerdy here. Here's what I got to tell you about righteousness. Okay? If you're writing notes, uh, you can keep doing it, I guess. Here we go. This is let me tell you about righteousness. Righteousness is directly linked to Jesus. I'll say it one more time because I know it's bursting some bubbles. Righteousness is directly linked to Jesus. And because of that, we must talk about two things. We must talk about the the, the doctrine of justification, and we must talk about imputation. Told you, getting a little bit nerdy. Okay, here we go. When we're talking about the doctrine of justification, we are talking about our legal standing before God. How is it that we can have legal standing before God? If you and I are such sinners, which we are, how can we be accepted before a holy God? The doctrine of justification says that God accepts us on the condition of faith alone. Our acceptance from God is not based on our merit. We did nothing to achieve salvation. In fact, the only thing that you and I contributed to our salvation is our sin. That is the only thing that we contributed to our salvation. And so when we talk about uh, the doctrine of justification, being righteous before God... It is upon the condition of faith alone. It is upon the condition of faith alone, not by our merit. Next up, when we talk about uh, imputation. Right now, here's the thing about imputation. That's just an SAT word. I've said it several different ways from the pulpit. You guys should already know it. 
when we talk about imputation, we're not just going to talk about just that one word. We're actually going to add a word to it, and we're going to say, uh, we're going to hold to double imputation. Everybody's like, what does this mean? Okay, check it out. Double imputation. This is, this is what it means, that on the cross, not only are our sins imputed upon Jesus, he then imputes his righteousness onto sinners. I've said it several different ways, right? On the cross, Jesus not only took on our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. Martin Luther, the reformer, calls this the great exchange. We gave him our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He took on our debt. He gave us his credit, right? That's what we mean when we're talking about this fancy-schmancy word called double imputation. It's the great exchange, right? Now, the reason we needed to talk about those things is because in verse 11, where he writes, fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, righteousness is directly linked to Jesus. Our righteousness is something that has been received, not achieved. And when he refers to fruit, he's talking now about works, Now he's talking about how we love one another, how we serve one another, the things that we do among one another. When he writes in, what is it, verse 8, where he says that our love may abound, it's not just this feeling and emotion that we have for one another, but it's that we are in this together and that our love for one another as we serve one another, as we grow in our sanctification among one another, increases. It It is works. It is a reflection of his work in us. The fruit of righteousness is unity in the church that is motivated by love for one another. By love for one another. God uses community, fellowship, maybe you want to use that word. God uses Christian community to sanctify us so that we would disciple one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. That is our goal in fellowship and in Christian community. God uses community to sanctify us so that we would disciple one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so in light of that, in light of that, I want to give you five practical realities that should be happening when we are in community with one another. These are five practical realities that we should share in community. If you have the notes, they're not on there. <laughs> and these are in no particular order. Okay, here we go. Number one. Sorry, Everett. <laughs> I think he's on his phone. You're not going to find them. They're not in the notes. They're written. <laughs> okay, five practical realities of community. Number one, the gospel. Right? The gospel is the first practical reality that we should share and have in community. See, Christian community is a place where the gospel has been believed because we are sinners in need of Jesus. And so the gospel unites us, right? The gospel unites us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, through him alone do we have access to one another, joy in one another, and fellowship with one another. 
So the one, one thing, one of the practical realities that we have in community is the gospel. That must be central. Number two, remember these are in no particular order. Number two, confession of sin. Now, a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, I could have come at them a different way. I could have used a different word, and I purposely chose not to. So uh, the second one is confession of sin. Because we are sinners and united in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Which means, number one, we shouldn't be surprised by sin. Oftentimes, I think this is where the church as a whole, not just storehouse, I'm talking about like church, all church, this is where we jack it up. This is where we jack it up, where we're so surprised. But that doesn't mean, I don't mean in the sense that you're thrown off. I mean in the sense that we're going to fall on our face. So, so stop being surprised by that, right? So number one is that we shouldn't be surprised by sin. And because we shouldn't be surprised by sin, we should confess our sin to one another. Right, that's James 5, that we should confess our sin to one another. Because here's the thing, when it comes to confession of sin, part of the reason we, we don't want to do it is, uh, well, actually, several reasons why we don't want to do it is because we're ashamed, we're embarrassed, we're going to feel judged. What are people going to say? Are people going to be surprised? Here, here's, here's what sin does. Sin helps to isolate us. And as it isolates us, we are ultimately consumed by darkness. And we are consumed by darkness because, man, we feel shame. Uh, we feel like we're going to be judged. We feel like people are going to think of us differently. We're going to, what all these different thoughts tend to go through our mind. However, when we confess our sin, two things happen. Number one, sin loses its power. When we confess our sin, sin loses its power. And what we receive then is the grace of God. That doesn't mean that we don't need to talk about things or there aren't consequences and we need to work. What it, yeah, like that's going to happen. But sin loses its power. Sin loses its power and we receive grace. What better way to experience grace than through the church that is united under the grace that it has been, that has been received, right? A few things more when it comes to confession of sin. I could have said accountability, but I think accountability is a result of confession of sin, right? One of the other things I can think about is, is when it comes to confession of sin, um, Again, this is where the church, I think we, we drop the ball when it comes to confession of sin. The reason people feel judged, the reason people feel shamed isn't just because of their sin, but it's because they've heard stories or have been in those scenarios where they have been judged and where they have been shamed and they have been uh, told many mean things, many mean and unbiblical things or ungodly things. And so when we confess our sin to one another, ultimately what we are doing is having sin lose its power, and receiving the grace of God. Now, some of you who don't want to be in community isn't just because you pride yourself on the introvert uh, banner, but it is because you know that this is an element of community, of Christian community, where the confession of sin takes place. And you may use the judgment or you may use the shame part as an excuse. I believe that there are some people who really do feel that. 
right? We, I talked to a few, uh, two people last week that that was their thing. Man, I just feel shame. I feel horrible for my sin. And I was like, dude, I love you. Hey, wait, like forgiveness happened. And then there's this other crew of people that use that as an excuse so that they can continue to indulge in their sin. That might be you. I'm sure it's some of us where you continue to uh, not just be isolated, but participate in your sin. And you know that in community, some of that's going to be exposed. And so you give me or other people excuses like, oh man, community is really not my thing. And, uh, you know, I watched TV that night. And whatever, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's all these different things and we make excuses because we know that our sin is going to be exposed because, which leads into the next one. Um, the next one is, is, uh, is discipleship. And I mean this both in a formal and informal way. Uh, when we're talking about discipleship, this is how we define discipleship here at Storehouse. We define discipleship as meeting people where they're at and taking them where Jesus wants them to be, Right? And so that means, so that's pretty easy. Meeting them where they're at, taking them where Jesus wants them to be. That's, that's very simple, but it's not easy, right? Because the in-between part means life and messiness and sin and uh, a whole other stuff. Like it's never, it's not neat, right? It's not, uh, it's not even systematic. It's none of that, right? And so when we confess our sin to one another and we begin to hold one another accountable and we begin to disciple one another, that means that we're going to be involved in one another's mess. And you don't want that. That means people are going to be in your life. And you don't want that. That means people are going to know. And you don't want that. Right? However, if our love for one another is to increase as a result of our knowledge and affection for Jesus, as a result of exercising discernment, becoming pure and blameless, and righteousness, the fruit of righteousness taking place. I don't see how we can do that outside of community. For the Christian or the individual who says, man, I love Jesus, just not the church. Yeah, you're walking away from God when you say that. And you're like, what, how? Let's look at Ephesians 5, right? That Jesus refers to, or Paul refers to Jesus as the, the groom, the church is the bride. You don't get one without the other. That's how it works, right? And if you have those real stories, and I mean that very, very, uh, like gently, if you have those real stories where you have experienced hurt and betrayal and stuff like that, man, I'm sorry. I really am. I'm really, really sorry, because it ties into the next one. See, in community, this is where love and authenticity should, should be taking place. That Christian community is not only an apologetic, but it's, it's a place where we should probably be the most real, authentic, and honest, and vulnerable. And that's one of the things that uh, relationships require. They require vulnerability. It requires time. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other things that we could talk about. But one of the factors that uh, is required of a relationship is vulnerability. You can't be vulnerable if you're isolated in darkness. And if you're isolated in darkness, you're very quick to forget the gospel. If you're very quick to forget the gospel, you're very quick to forget what Jesus has done and who you are. And if you're very quick to forget who you are, your love for others cannot abound because your knowledge of Christ isn't increasing. And when we look at these factors, 
especially in relationships. I think oftentimes we will even listen to other uh, pastors or preachers and be like, man, what are the things that I need to do? What we need first is the gospel. Let's, let's start there. That's probably the most biggest practical reality. And then the last thing is transformation. You see, in community, we're transformed not because we're awesome, but because of the Holy Spirit and His work in us. So when we talk about Christian community, when we talk about fellowship, Christian community is a tangible demonstration of transformation. Say that one more time. Christian community is a tangible demonstration of transformation. Remember, guys, God uses community to sanctify us so that we would disciple one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we close our time, um, Lord, it, uh, what, what Paul is talking about when he writes, when Paul is talking about when he writes about uh, the church being partakers of grace, I think, I know I do this. I, I'm in this, in this category. I think we often devalue grace and are quick to forget that it was very costly. And so, Lord, through your word, man, two things. Number one, my prayer is that we would be grounded in the grace of your gospel, and the grace of your salvation, and the grace of, of sanctification, that we would be grounded on grace. And as a result uh, of that, that our love for one another would increase. And that might mean that sin needs to be exposed Areas that we have kept from you, not that you don't know about them, but areas that we've kept from you or resisted you in, that they would, the walls would be uh, torn down so that you would wreck our hearts, so that our eyes would be fixed on you to understand what you've done and our love for one another grow. At the end of the day, Lord, I pray that we would ultimately glorify you as a church because of the work that you're doing in your people. And Lord, as we continue this time of worship by walking into tithes and offerings, Lord, this is, this is a time where it is a, this, this is a tangible demonstration of transformation. This is one of those moments where we relinquish the control we think we have and where we give you our stuff. Because our joy is not found in materials or uh, anything else other than you. And so we ask all these things in your name. Amen.